did seven years now on a study on the conglomeration of the publishing industry. This starts in the 60s, 1960s. Prior to that, most publishing houses were smallish, independent-ish. But in the 60s, large multimedia conglomerates start buying up all the publishing houses. And by the time you get to, you know, the year 2000, there's just six global media conglomerates that run most of trade publishing in the United States. I've been really interested in what this means for fiction. This is an excerpt from season four, The World's Work. In this episode, we were discussing what was then a new film by Wes Anderson, The French Dispatch. In the context of working conditions at the New Yorker magazine, upon which the film was loosely based. The voice you're hearing is that of Dan Sinekin. The book project he mentioned is now on the verge of being published by Columbia University Press. Big Fiction, How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry and American Literature, will be available everywhere next Tuesday, October 24th. It's a field-shaping work. Going forward, criticism of any book published in the U.S. after the 1960s really should have to place it in its conglomeration context. And Dan gives us just a taste of why that's so important here. I wanted to ask you about this, Dan. I assume that your work is building to some extent upon Andre Shiflin's sort of talking about conglomeration in publishing, but also this transformation of American cultural space during the post-45 period mm-hmm. in film and television, right? The sort of you know media amalgamation becoming the process for understanding all forms of mass culture. And I'm wondering, what do you think is the effect of the conglomerate in sort of the sort of broadest elevator pitch terms Mm -hmm. on specifically fiction, it sounds like you're interested in, and the sort of aesthetics that are prioritized in American popular fiction? Yeah, absolutely. I love that you brought up Andre Schifrin. Andre Schifrin published this memoir in the year 2000 or 2001 about his insider view of how conglomerates ruined, in his opinion, publishing. Andre Schifrin is this key figure in my book. I open the book with him. I close the book with him. There was a, there was a signal event when he was fired from Random House in 1990. It was a massive deal. He had been at Pantheon since 1962. He's an Oxbridge trained. His dad was one of the basically founders of Pantheon. Pantheon is this really highly esteemed press, which is purchased by Random House in 1962. Schifrin goes there in 1963. So Random House buys up Knopf and Pantheon to get these prestigious houses in the early 60s. Pantheon introduces Michel Foucault to the United States is Studs Terkel's lifetime publisher, publishes E.P. Thompson and Eric Hobsbawm. So like this really important publisher and Andre Schifrin's the guy. Andre Schifrin is the guy who runs that house under Random House. So for years, Random House it gets purchased by, by RCA in 1965. But there's this guy, Bob Bernstein, who's the president of Random House and manages to hold off RCA and everybody else and let Schifrin do his thing for decades, right? And in the 80s, so Sainu House again, this tycoon who is like kind of buddies with Donald Trump, which is how, if I'm remembering right, Sainu House's like friendliness with Donald Trump is how the art of the deal ends up going to a, a random house imprint. So Sainu House fires Bernstein in the late 80s after getting rid of Bob Gottlieb to The New Yorker. And then when Bernstein gets fired, finally, who had been protecting Schifrin for all these years, Newhouse brings in this 
econ PhD, Matt, you like that, mm-hmm. named Alberto Vital, who used to run Fiat, the, the Italian car company. He's an Italian guy, he's an econ PhD, he comes into Random House as the new president, and he basically sits down with Schifrin and says, look, you're not making enough money, you're going to have to make some changes with your budgeting. And Schifrin's like, fuck you, I've been doing this for 30 years, I brought Foucault to the United States, what do you want? And Vital's like, well, you're fired. His firing was this huge event. All these people go and show up and protest outside Random House. So it's Turkle, of course, Kurt Vonnegut, Barbara Ehrenreich, all these people are like marching in front of Random House. Like it's been this war of attrition. Everyone's felt it. Everyone's like deeply feels the process of conglomeration who's in the book, New York book world and has felt it for decades. And this moment of shift from being fired feels to them like this kind of like dangerous blow, this like pivotal moment to get to the question that you asked about what has this actually meant for fiction. One of the main things that has happened over the 20 previous years from 1970 to 1990 is the decreasing influence of the editor and the increasing influence of marketing and publicity in terms of who gets to acquire things, but also with marketing departments having and sales departments having increasing say or veto power on questions of acquisitions. But then on the other end of things, you have editors having decreasing amount of time to actually edit books starting in the 70s because they are increasingly needing to fill up profit and loss forms and pay attention to the business side of their job. And so you have literary agents entering in on that other side to do more of the work of the editor in the 70s and 80s. Now, a literary agent is in a very different structural position than an editor. An editor is sitting inside of the house. They've got a certain amount of protection in in that job, being able to do, they need to do books that sell, but other people are responsible for selling the books. So they kind of get to focus on making the best books according to their personal judgment with some, you know, fudging there for their personal judgment, having to also have some degree of saleability. But literary agent is much more directly structurally connected to capital and much more directly structurally like connected to the market. And, And the literary agent is this kind of living instantiation to me of the like metaphor of the invisible hand. They're really trying to lubricate the market as much as possible by getting, acquiring, selling books that they think are going to sell. And Laura B. McGrath is doing this incredibly important work on the rise and centrality of agents to contemporary publishing. What happens is you have the vision of the market that an agent thinks is what the market wants being projected onto writers and writers then inhabiting that style or form. Something that a lot of people have noticed, literary genre fiction became incredibly prominent by the late 90s and early 2000s with writers like Juno Diaz, Colson Whitehead, Cormac McCarthy's first is Westerns and his post-apocalypse book. You have writers taking on genre techniques coming from the literary fiction side. And there's all sorts of reasons that I draw like the actual mechanisms in the book of why that starts happening in as early as the 80s, actually. Welcome to the American Band from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siebel. Dan's book, like the answer he just gave, focuses on the implications of conglomeration for fiction. But obviously, there are abundant consequences for criticism as well. And in this episode, I'm dividing the conglomeration effects on criticism into two broad categories, literary agents and literary awards. As Dan mentions, one of the most concrete effects of conglomeration has been to elevate the literary agent to the place of lead tastemaker, 
a place previously occupied by acquiring editors, and perhaps in an even earlier era by poet critics. It was Dan who first drew my attention to the work on literary agents being done by Laura McGrath, who you met last episode. Dan and Laura are co-editors of the Culture Industries section of Public Books, a very important para-academic publication, and I'll be asking Laura to tell us about that later in the episode. But first, let's go inside the literary agency. Here's Laura. The argument that I make all the time is that literary agents are doing literary criticism. When they look through a slush pile or when they are pitching books to editors, this is a form of literary criticism. It looks different than what we do in the classroom. It's much more motivated by what will ultimately be saleable, but it's still doing that work, deciding whether or not uh, a manuscript that you've received over the transom on submission is worth publication or what needs to happen to this manuscript in order for it to be publishable is the work that we often do as teachers, for one, when we look at our students' essays and help them develop them. But it's also the sort of work that we are training students to do or that we're doing in our own right. Uh, Likewise, when you pitch an editor, who would like this? Who wants to see this? Who is going to be the best person to help develop this book further, to help it receive the readership that it needs? That's a different sort of recommendation, but that's not terribly different than the sort of work that we do when we review books, depending on whatever audience it is that we're writing for. Are we writing for ALH? Are we writing for The New Yorker? Are we writing for the alumni newsletter? (laughs) Are we handing something to our neighbor? That's important, critical work as well. And likewise, the way that agents pitch, the sort of pitch letters that they write can eventually be, and often is, if they're good agents, the jacket copy that is printed on the back of a book that is the first thing that you or I are going to be reading when you pick something up randomly off of a bookshelf in the bookstore. That gets circulated through every single author interview. That gets circulated in the awards circuit. That is traceable, oftentimes, back to a book's first reader, which is an agent. you, you identify that abstractification, summarization, right? Like those are the very first skills that we teach as criticism, even in freshman comp is like, mm-hmm. if you are doing any sort of interpretive and analytical work towards a text, whether it's a, a book manuscript or a movie or an audiobook or whatever, like the, the very first things that you're trying to learn is how to abstract, how to summarize, synthesize, how to make something big, more concise in a way oftentimes that induces, and this is where the literary agent becomes very explicit, in a way that induces people to want more, right? Right. To want more of the book, to want more of your essay of the work that you are trying to sell in very explicit terms with the literary agent. And that is something that I wanted to follow up on. You said that literary agents are a sort of first line, again, somewhat invisible, you know, literary criticism. Do you find that the agents are trained in very similar ways Mm -hmm. to the kinds of literary critics that are maybe more visible and that we talk more about? Where does that training differ? In what ways is the act of criticism that leads to the agent buying a manuscript or signing on with an author different from the act of criticism that gets published in LA Review of Books or Public Books or American Literary History. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have not, I'm trying to check myself. Mm-hmm. I think that this is true. I'm pretty certain this is true. I have not met a single agent who was not an English major. 
many agents that I have met also started or finished MFAs. They started or finished MAs or PhDs in literature. They have much of the same training that we have, perhaps not quite committing to the grad school route, perhaps less foolhardy than we might be, but at least have the same basic level of training of what an English major would have when you leave your four years of undergraduate work. Not incidentally, that's true of many audiobook narrators as well. And so one thing I think about a lot is the assistants that are reading these books. So to get to an agent, even submitting something anonymously over a slush pile, the agent that you're querying is not probably the person that's reading that pitch first. It's probably their assistant who's 23 years old and making 40 grand a year, who I think about this all the time when I am talking to assistants or when I meet them in the process of talking to the principals that they work for. That person could have been my student two years ago, right? One year ago, that person could have been my student. And they're making that kind of initial decision. Should we pass or should I pass this on to my boss? So that way they can then determine whether or not this is something that they want to represent. Like the amount of labor that's being done by assistants who are dramatically underpaid in a ridiculously expensive city is something to be given a lot more consideration than we tend to. But even still, that said, that student probably has the training that we're leaving our undergraduates with. So think about the learning outcomes that your uh, department probably has developed for an English major. If a student is pursuing a career in publishing, those things are getting operationalized. They're becoming actionable in really specific ways, in ways that do ultimately have consequences downstream for what eventually gets read. So I'd say at, at that basic level, the training that an agent has, at least initially, comes from having been a lifelong reader and having most likely been trained in literary studies at the undergraduate level. So many agents also want to be writers or had wanted to be writers at some point until many of them realized how hard being a writer is or the amount of skill and talent that writers have to have. A lot of editors have that similar path too. So I I find that to be really compelling and one reason why I find agents to be so interesting to talk to in that we have some shared disciplinary background. In terms of the work that they do and how it might be different than something like LARB or public books, it really depends on, I think, the sort of work that they're representing. It depends on the sort of clients that they're representing, people that are on their list. Obviously, the agent's job is to sell the book. And so whatever recommendations that they are making, whatever criticism that they are doing, has one very specifically desirable outcome. There's no pans. When you're an agent selling a book, you just pass on the book. And so I think that is one way where we should acknowledge that this criticism leads to different ends rather than necessarily producing knowledge, producing money. And so that's huge. And so I don't want to overstate the role that criticism happens to play for a lot of agents. But I've written elsewhere about comp titles and the sort of algorithmic nature of comp titles as an engine of discrimination. And that's very true. That's true, particularly for editors, particularly in the publishing house where An acquisition is based on past precedent, and it's based on how a book might be similar to something else. But that's not necessarily the case for agents or for the way that they think about comps or for the way that they go about pitching. They're not the ones making acquisition decisions with any money behind it in the way that editors are. And so I think about the sort of function that a list might play for an agent. What does it mean to add a new writer to this list? How do they think about their lists as curating a particular literary sensibility in a way that we might think about putting together a syllabus? How can we combine these authors, put their works in conversation in a way that can advance an argument or that might help us think about the literary field or literary history in different ways? An agent's list is functioning in a way that is somewhat similar.
an agent might use comps to pitch a book the way that they might think about an author in relationship to someone else. If you're pitching an author who is writing in the style of David Foster Wallace, there's some level of hype, and that might be exaggerated as a part of the process of selling. But there's also a way in which you are inviting an editor to read a book in a certain way, to think about this new manuscript that they might be receiving in a literary tradition or as a part of a kind of aesthetic or political sensibility. And so I think that sort of attention to a work's context, the sort of situation in which a work should be received, the way in which an agent kind of pitches a book is not terribly different than the way that if I were reviewing a novel, for instance, I might be helping readers understand the context or the situation in which a book should be read or the way in which an author's sensibility might be working within a tradition. So in as much as I think the system and processes of acquisition tend to have a very narrowing function, tend to have a, a limiting function when you're at the editorial level, I think for agents, it looks not terribly dissimilar to what we might be doing oftentimes as literary critics. Yeah. Your answer really crystallized for me. There will be people who listen to that answer and what they hear is a kind of stereotype that all of the supposed gatekeepers for literature, editors, agents, assistants, critics, are all failed creative writers right? <laughs> or novice ones, maybe is another way of putting it, that we have somehow created a system in which the people who wanted at one time to be writers, but decided for whatever reason, they were inadequate to that task, are now choosing who gets to be published. And I think that's a very stereotypical way of looking at critics and at editors that goes back to the 19th century. But what I hear is that the sort of crisis of reproducing the humanities and maybe specifically literary studies has significant consequences economic consequences beyond the academy. Here are all these people that you're identifying, not just probably what we would immediately recognize, working critics, editors, right? These are people who are trained in literary studies, but also agents and audiobook narrators and the heads of production studios who are all formerly English PhDs, English undergrads, MFA students, who are all people whose skills matured within the infrastructure of literary studies. And that they, far from producing a, a sort of diminishing return, a, a kind of medium in obsolescence, they are producing stuff that is very much in demand. Oftentimes when we defend the humanities, what we defend is what they are doing within the academy. The role they play in general education, the liberal arts model, the idea of some sort of cultural literacy or cultural capital. And we seem to overlook the extent to which it is those students, both undergrad and graduate, who then go out into the world and play an extraordinary role in producing all of the cultural products that we see. Whether they are the name on the spine or not, they are doing essential work in the culture industries, as you guys like to call it at Public Books. So there's been a big um, agent scandal that's been going on for the past two weeks on 
uh, Twitter, as one might expect. If there's a scandal that's going to be happening online, it's happening on Twitter. But I saw, I don't remember who it was, but an agent who does not live in New York tweeting in response to something. And she was saying, look, you have to keep in mind that agents are just doing jobs, right? It's not necessarily like we always get to make these grand statements of value. We're trying to make money. And I drafted a response and then I'm just not particularly invested in those sorts of scandals. But the idea that we're not making statements of value or we're not making choices based upon value, we're just making money, that those things could be mutually exclusive to me is just patently absurd and holds no water theoretically. That is a value statement that one might make money without any sort of value judgment is uh, ridiculous. Anyway, I think you know what I'm saying. But yeah. And so at the culture industry section, what, what we're trying to do at Public Books is trying to make those values very plain, show the places of connection, show the spaces in which those values are operative and the basis of the decisions that are getting made that ultimately downstream affect how we're reading and consuming and eventually critiquing. And, and that to me seems a space where we make these claims all the time. Our deans like to make these claims all the time. Like English majors can get jobs everywhere. And that's true. And I think... Are they jobs they want, though? <laughs> those, those are also good questions. Or they like to claim that DH is a space where th this will be the thing that like helps students get jobs. And I feel very uneasy with digital humanities being used that way as a carrot or maybe stick or both um, for like career professional training for English majors. But it has to do with like quantification being the only kind of meaningful skill, right? Oh, if we just make the humanities more quantitative, more computational, yeah, if, we, yeah. if we use tools that are drawn out of STEM fields in order to perform the humanities, that will make them more valuable because clearly those things are more valuable. Mm -hmm. I think that's the logic mm -hmm. that we often see performed from those kinds of deans, right? right. We're going to save the humanities by making them more scientific. Yeah, I think there's one response, which is to say literary criticism as it's happening or literary studies as it might be informing all of those other cultural industries is a bastardized version of literary criticism, or it is just cheap derivation, and therefore I'm not going to engage it. Or there's a, a way of approaching this, which is to say, this is shaping how my students read. This is shaping everything that my students are bringing with them to class. And so I want to engage it. I want to study it. I want to figure out how to speak back into that industry, as opposed to emphasizing that the differences and the challenges between us. I mean, I think that's been so great and wonderful about talking to agents. When I started this project, I was so condescending. I expected that I would be talking to like versions of Ari Gold or Jerry Maguire or whatever mm, stereotype right. of an agent that you happen to have. Mm. And so I was asking these questions like, have you ever heard of the canon? Let me explain this to you. As though I was the only one who had some claim to understanding literary history. And I was a, a grad student at the time too. So a lot of this was like my like sophomorific qualities of feeling very <laughs> excited about starting my dissertation. But I was so condescending. And instead, aside from the fact that I've found so many agents really lovely to speak to, people who are really invested in the future of literature, people who care deeply about literary history and think really hard about their place in it. And that's been really refreshing. That's really changed the way that I think about 
how to do criticism, about where it happens, about how to engage with readers outside of the academy. And that's been a real joyful aspect of the work, to be very honest. And so that's prompted me to think about more ways that I can engage with or learn from people who are outside of the academy, but involved in the processes of making literature or making art or making music or making films, not only out of a desire to engage in like a rigorous material or sociological sort of study, but as a way of kind of disabusing myself of the notion that I have any ownership over this, Mm -hmm. but that in fact, like literature, literary criticism is a much more collective project. I could choose not to engage with people who are shaping reception, shaping the way that my non-academic family thinks, the way that my students think, or I could value what they have to say, understanding its context, understanding its situatedness, understanding the particular habitus that these people occupy, whoever they happen to be, and learn from it. And that seems to me to be one of the real promises of doing field work. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's, yeah, fantastic. It was very helpful to me when you used the example of the agent's assistant who is combing through the slush pile. Yeah. Because I've I've actually had two recent English majors from Elmira College have gotten jobs as assistants in publishing. Okay, that means that those outcomes you mentioned, the, the way that we're designing our major, the things that we are trying, the decisions that sometimes seem hard to measure, whether it's in the larger picture of sort of curriculum design or when you're actually in the pedagogy of a particular course, what effect is this having on my students? Does it have any consequences, right? And you give a great example of of yes, right? Like the amount of work that we can do to prepare that person, to give them a range of skills, of access to different works, of different value systems, different theoretical and critical approaches, like that is almost immediately going to be operationalized in them reading a slush pile, right? <laughs> like, and if we're letting them skate by, right, they're going to be worse at that job. And presumably it's going to have knock-on consequences that could affect actually us and mm-hmm. the kinds of work that we get to read. Right? So I think that's, yeah, that's incredibly empowering and, and also a little bit scary. Right? It is yeah. shocking how much of the publishing industry is being run by assistants. Like how much of the actual consequential work you think of the big deal editors who have these amazing reputations for just doing such wonderful editorial work. And those reputations are deserved. You think about the agents who uh, perhaps you don't know who they are, but I know who they are. (laughs) You think about the big deal agents and you think, oh man, if ever I could get to the office of this person or that person and you pause, right? And remember, no, they've got assistants and assistants. The gatekeepers have so many other gatekeepers that to even get to that place requires making it through several locked doors, several closed gates, narrow paths. And most of those people are not seasoned in the way that you would think. They're 22-year-old assistants, and that is not a trivial matter. (laughs) By alluding to the gates on moats on gates on moats that characterize the ever-larger but also increasingly fortified towers of the few remaining publishing conglomerates. Laura reminds us of one of the paradoxes which has animated Criticism Limited from the start, that the expansion and diversification of the venues for literary criticism, which we have been charting over the last three episodes, 
coincides with the consolidation of the infrastructure which produces most of the objects of that criticism. While we're focusing on the publishing conglomerates in this episode, much of the same process has been occurring in music, television, film, gaming, and the performing arts. A proliferation of mediums, modes, and outlets for criticism and commentary, paralleled by a series of mergers and acquisitions, which bring whole global culture industries under a small handful of corporate umbrellas. In publishing, as Laura, Mark McGurl, and Tom Lutz have alluded to during this series, conglomeration and the short-term profit motives incumbent to it intrinsically places pressure on imprints, editors, agents, and authors to imitate and recycle, to deliver books tailored to familiar genres, existing fandoms, and trending topics. In an essay for The Nation published last week, Dan Sinekin went so far as to declare the end of literary fiction and its implicit commitment to originality and experimentation, at least from within the conglomerates. We are fast approaching a world of mass market literature, which is vampires, dragons, robots, and cowboys all the way down. Which doesn't mean that there isn't aesthetic or political complexity circulating within prescribed genres and franchises nor rare works that invent new genres for imitation and commodification. While the popular criticism that circulates on booktube, booktalk, and fanfic purveyors like Wattpad, which we discussed last episode, mostly addresses itself to the fattest part of the bell curve of what the conglomerates want. The foremost critical apparatus for identifying and amplifying works that press up against the gates of what's possible from within the conglomerates are literary prizes. Which is not to say that the major literary awards aren't deeply imbricated in conglomeration. You'll remember Sherry Marie Harrison from our discussion of the Blogazants a couple episodes ago, as well as numerous appearances on The American Vandal over the years, notably to discuss what she terms the new black gothic, a prime example of how authors and filmmakers can adapt market-friendly genres to fit radical ideas. There's probably nobody I've talked to more about new literary media. For the last several years, Sherry has been reading the prize lists, and I wanted to know what she was learning from organizing her reading of contemporary fiction in this way. It feels to me as though in some of your practice in the last few years, you have been trying to negotiate the line between sort of critic and fan. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think it's a really interesting struggle to bring to this conversation for a variety of reasons, among them that any discussion of criticism, certainly any discussion of criticism that takes into account the idea of literary capital or cultural capital, then also brings with it some consideration of canons, right? Mm -hmm. And canons that are oftentimes formed by critics, canons that can be formed by fandoms. And certainly one of the things I wanted to talk about was awards. And I know that part of the way you've been negotiating 
this line between critic and fan is by organizing your reading around the awards. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to get you to talk a little bit about what brought on that strategy for reading mm -hmm. and what have you learned through it, oh both God. about the awards, about your relationship towards contemporary world literature. Yeah, I've just found it very interesting to think about how that structuring of your reading must be bearing fruit after doing it for a few years. It totally is right now, Matt, in some really fascinating ways. So I started off with the Booker Prize and I started off with the Booker Prize because Marlon James won the Booker Prize in oh, why am I not remembering when he won it for a brief history of seven killings? 2015? Yeah, um, that sounds right. Yeah. And I feel like I had just only been tangentially paying attention to books that came up as winners, not necessarily as shortlisted or longlisted. And so after James won the prize, I started to think a lot about, and actually I saw a talk at a conference by Katie Muth around about the same time, a little bit earlier, I think. And she was giving a talk about book prizes and talking about book prizes as a force of canonization in the contemporary period. And so when James won, to the extent that I've been obsessed with Marlon James for a couple of years now, it got me thinking about what do these prizes want? What are they looking for? Because this is a weird book. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's interesting too, because the one that just won last year, The Seven Moons of Mali Almeida, gives me a brief history of seven killings vibe in terms of how that book is written and so it, it makes me think about how fractured narratives are working in sort of a prize network and how prizes are looking for this particular thing but then starting to do research around book prizes and in reading james english for example and seeing there are a lot more about sensationalism than anything else in that moment of studying book prizes, right? It made me start to think of other prizes and what makes the lists. And if I was going to only read the Booker Prize, what was I not going to be getting? What are the books that I'm not going to be figuring out? And then in the interim, they started to do the translation prize as well. That got really interesting. And so that broadened reading a little bit. And then I started to read prize lists with other people. And they started bringing more lists. <laughs> so now I'm reading both Booker Prize long I start with the long lists. So both Booker Prize long lists. Last two years, I've been reading the Women's Literature Prize out of the mm -hmm. UK. I read the National Book Award, the mm -hmm. Critics Circle Award, and Penn Faulkner. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is that across all of those lists, there's some fascinating overlap. And that overlap often has to do with the big four publishers. It has right. everything to do with who's sending the books out. Mm. But then there are also some really interesting distinctions, too, between what American writers, regardless of race or ethnicity, are thinking about versus what non-American writers are thinking about. And so one of the things that I've been mulling a lot are some of the aesthetic differences between the International Prize Booker List that's translated from various languages, how that one differs from the Anglophone lists. Because the Booker Prize is since allowing American writers to enter the field, it started to resemble the other lists and the, the other American-based lists because American writers are populating it more than 
Mm -hmm. other writers than before. And so the only one that kind of remains unique and interesting, right now the only word that I have for it is like weird, mm -hmm. <laughs> is, is the international prize list. And I think we keep invoking Nacho, but like some of the moves that Latin American writers are making to think about the present, to think about precarity in the present, to think about how violence and terror work in the present. There's something about how those books capture the same themes that are prevalent across or the themes that I'm drawn to because of what I'm drawn to in my research. There's something about how the non-Anglophone books depict that, that I find myself, I think it's from a place of not being able to comprehend it, like not being able to apprehend it as easily as I do in books in English. The language is sometimes labyrinthine. In, it's just weird. I've been telling some of my friends that I read these lists with that the books that, that stick with me are the ones that I can't understand immediately. Like, mm -hmm. so when you read as much as you can, you know exactly where a book is going versus another one where it just like surprises you at every turn because the narrative move that it makes aren't the ones that you're expecting. Mm. Um, you mentioned that you're, just, you're developing reading partners around mm -hmm. these lists. And I'm mm -hmm. curious, is that other professors and other people in your field primarily, or are these yes. groups more like book clubs where you no, have- not book clubs. I have one main partner, my colleague, Alex Socarides, who is an Emily Dickinson scholar. And it's funny too, because we're both full-time administrators now. And mm -hmm. so <laughs> a part of our reading practice is being in denial of not being full-time um, right. <laughs> faculty yeah. anymore. And so we've been reading together for two years. And reading with Alex, too, is a thing that is challenging both of us to talk about what we like. And what we like also tends to be the same things that we're attracted to as scholars in a book. We've been talking about how the National Book Award is our least favorite award because in the last couple of years, it's featured books that are about pain and suffering in ways that are stagnant and sometimes yeah. feel, they feel trauma porny, if that makes sense. Scenes of subjection. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And so it's not a particularly interesting list because it just seems to perpetuate one way of thinking about the work of writing. And then so far, again, like the International Booker Award is the list that, that gives the most variety in terms of what work can a prize list of fiction do or how can it depict the work of fiction in our present, not just for critics who are professional, whether academic or otherwise, but for readers. Like what are the things that they're making readers think about the world in this moment? And I've just found that it's the international booker list that gives the most variety where that is concerned. So that it begs the question, is there to some extent more pressure or more... I'm trying to think about how to phrase this. I think there's been a lot of concern trolling about the reproduction of literary criticism and the skills, mm -hmm. forms associated with literary criticism, and oftentimes an implicit or sometimes explicit critique, but oftentimes implicit critique that we can't reproduce those forms if we are not reproducing something at the center of them, something that approximates a literary canon. 
Mm-hmm. And that set of moves certainly informs the constructions of curriculums. I think it, it informs a lot of the grant funding from humanities yeah. organizations and things yeah. like that. It certainly informs some of the think pieces we've had from legacy media. And I, I do wonder, given what you've just said, whether like the reproduction of literary fandom is actually the thing that we need to be worried more about. It's both the thing that seems less endangered, mm-hmm. less in crisis at the moment, but is also fundamental to any kind of demand or any kind of role that literary critics might play as a kind of superstructural form that has to exist only after there exists a body of literary fans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I think to the extent that we don't, and Laura's work does this too, where it brings through its DI provenance together the critic and the fan, right? Mm -hmm. Like I think thinking about the two things as separately isn't actually how this works, right? Right. And she talks about this in her stuff on, on book prizes and how book prizes become an engine for how things appear on syllabi and they appear on syllabi around what would be accessible in in the classroom for students because some of us won't bring things in that will, will create too much trouble in terms of unpacking for particular students but like i want to back up a little bit too to this idea of generating canons and i think a part of what i'm always looking for even as i proliferate these lists is a kind of And it's futile, Matt. I think it's totally futile. And that's the thing that I'm learning because of how publishing works. But I'm always looking for some kind of logic to thwart the systems of canonization. Mm -hmm. I'm always looking for those books or those conversations or those discourses that are not making it into this particular milieu that is so imbricated and freighted with all kinds of other market forces and just absorption of everything. I'm always thinking about what's not getting drawn in here. Where are the outliers and how can I find the outliers? And that's becoming increasingly not possible, right? Even as independent booksellers or independent book publishers are either going out of business or becoming absorbed by the bigger presses, which is why I like Brittle Paper, because Brittle Paper pays attention to not just European and American publishers, but also some publishers on the continent of Africa as well, and not only books in English. So that gives a kind of opening. But I think to the extent that what we have in circulation to read is already so heavily circumscribed inside of all kinds of systems, it bears thinking even more carefully about canonization in this moment and how canonization becomes a force for how we do the work of criticism and the mediums or media through which we do that work of criticism as well. Yeah, this is fundamentally, I think, why I wanted to talk about awards Mm -hmm. is because they are both generating types of criticism and curation by their very existence. Yes. Uh, And certainly there is a whole kind of layer of criticism that becomes dedicated to the prestige of these awards. And oftentimes practicing critics are involved in the choosing of the awards Mm -hmm. and the list Mm -hmm. and so forth. So clearly these infrastructures are deeply intertwined, but also there does seem to be an implicit 
suggestion that awards can fill the role that the canon once held. Right. Mm. And that maybe the generation of new awards, as you said, the feeling that there are more awards than ever mm-hmm. <laughs> and that there is maybe more lobbying than ever to get books on those lists and, mm-hmm. and to manufacture excitement around the awards and to sell books certainly on the back of those awards. That's all suggests to me that this is something that is in some ways at least by some people, probably particularly the publishers, who have been hurt by the disappearance of a canon. (laughs) This is something that they are offering up (laughs) as a kind of substitute. To the extent that I'm just always conscious of it being a substitute in this way and thinking about what's not there and what's not getting into the newly formed prize prestige canon and why? And is that, is that because of literary reasons or, and so what kind of books aren't getting on the national book award list and why it's not just in terms of winners or losers, not losers, but not people who end up getting long or shortlisted. It's how these things And I wish I knew more about how book publishing worked, say, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. What were the ways and did it work in the same kind of canonizing way or what were some of the differences? The one thing that I know about about book publishing, say, after the civil rights movement, for example, is presses may have wanted more books about African-American life, history, philosophy, all of these Mm -hmm. things. You see a groundswell of books surrounding that. And there's a distinct thing that happens post-George Floyd with many publishers who publicly did the work of diversifying their staff and their acquisitions, editors and their offerings in some of the same way Netflix did, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And we aren't necessarily seeing as publicly what has happened to those initiatives in this moment in terms of what happened with Netflix as well, that all those people who got hired post-George Floyd are now fired, right? Same thing Um, happened at HBO. Yes. And so is that also happening in book publishing? And so like, how is that shaping the work that we end up doing as literary critics? If these kinds of political forces are shaping book offerings and we are selecting books for our classrooms and selecting books for our scholarship and thinking, thinking through how literature is working in the present. Yeah through an acquisitions process. And again, this is where Laura comes in too, right? That is mediated by agents, by editors, by the business of publishing in this moment in a way that's different from another era. And so in as much as I enjoy reading these lists, what becomes more and more frighteningly apparent about them is just homogeny. And homogeny in terms of, of literary aesthetics. And that, that doesn't happen across any epoch of literature, but... It, it feels manipulative, mm-hmm. especially on the National Book Awards list sometimes. It, it feels manipulative politically in ways that make it worrisome for some of the work that we do in our classrooms and teaching students to be critics of literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have we now experienced this sort of white lash in publishing where from that sort of wave of anti-racist both books being published mm-hmm. also publishing houses giving lip service at least to anti-racist policies in their acquisition process yes. 
to now maybe a search for the next J.D. Vance, for the next anti-woke author. Is that white lash process already underway? Yeah, it is in academic publishing in some ways too, right? Like what's going on with with Oxford. I... I, it, it would be interesting to see. We haven't necessarily seen the full movement of anti-wokeness yet. I want to say it'll be a very interesting landscape in the next three years, maybe, mm-hmm. in terms of what kinds of books we're going to get. Because publishing is on a very long yes. arc, right? Like If we think about like movies and television, 10 it, to the extent that they are reacting to current events seem mm-hmm. to be always on a, a year or 18 mm-hmm. month lag. Yeah. Book publishing in particular is probably on what, a three or four three year, year lag? I want to say three year. I think three years is where we'll start to see something different. Like going back to a little bit about why I may have gotten bored with some of the Caribbean writing that was being published in the US and not necessarily so much out of the UK either. This is a thing that I've started to think about a lot as well about how to organize first-generation Caribbean-American or first-generation Caribbean-British texts and the ways that they think about emplacement, the ways that they think about alienation, the ways that they think about the Caribbean as a home space and how sometimes the way that they look at the Caribbean as a home space has sometimes has neo-imperial glances, right? That this is a space that exists to be possessed by us for these particular reasons in ways that are very similar to imperialist ways of thinking. If you sort of look at how and who has been publishing the books that do that, like there is some sameness that is happening, especially inside of contemporary books written by authors of color in response to the political moment in the response to needing content to show that you have diverse publishing lists mm-hmm. that create for me in my mind a corpus of literary work to be studied and examined and every now and again you get one that doesn't do the same thing and you realize that the one that doesn't do the same thing comes from some imprint somewhere that you've never heard of mm. so that's very interesting to me oh and how you discovered that one matt is yes. because the blogger who is living in Trinidad got sent that one from that press. From that local or regional yeah. press. And right? said something like, I've never seen anything like this before. And I'm looking for that. I'm like, what do you mean you've never seen this before? You read hundreds of books every year. Let me get this book and see what it's... And and she's right. It doesn't... It's not familiar in the same ways. Yeah. I mean, that, that strikes me very much as corporate imperialism, right? <laughs> that, we, yeah. that if authors are trying for the sake of their livelihoods to appeal to an increasingly small number of publishing houses that are concentrated primarily in the U.S. and Britain. And all of the awards are being driven disproportionately by those publishing houses. And that's those awards that get them the prestige that then gets them on book tours and as visiting writers and helps to make a career, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And the book club, the book club imprint yeah. too, Jenna and Reese. Jenna and Reese are the new Oprah, right? Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> Those are the books that you'll see Cindy and the other blogger that I was mentioning in Jamaica, Rebel Woman Lit. They get in those boxes of books from Penguin and Penguin's various imprints, the books that are going to be talked about from these talk shows or these stars who are also like the book club is interesting. It's one sort of area too that I haven't paid attention to besides like noticing the stickers on the front of the books, but like another source of canonization that is driven by social justice and political awareness in some of those some of those same circles. That's fascinating because what you suggest there is that these if these books clubs are founded on the idea of this is an anti-racist book club or this is a social justice book club that suggests that the critique is coming first, right? Like yes. that these are people that already have some sort of foundational understanding of cultural critique, of political yep. critique, and that is informing then their reading of fiction and nonfiction, I presume. Yep. Yep, absolutely. It's informing their reading and not necessarily being critical of that, but just understanding that when you have those values in place to begin with, and the marketplace is also lined up to deliver you precisely that, mm -hmm. and your team is going to bring exactly that to you, then which book is going to get selected by Jenna becomes one of the things that the agents are looking for in their pitch parties on Twitter, for example, that ends up determining in part, in small part, but in part nonetheless, who's going to get published. As Sherry mentions, Laura McGrath is also part of a digital humanities collective who have been compiling data related to literary prizes. I wanted to know what she thought about the idea that awards have become a mechanism for canonization in the interests of the conglomerates. It's interesting to think about where awards sit in the process of things. Sociologist Clayton Childress talks about the fields of creation and production and reception as being three distinct overlapping subfields of, of what we might broadly call the field of literary production. And things like audiobook narrators and things like reviews happen much closer to the kind of field of production in that they're contiguous with that process, whereas awards are straddling production reception and further toward the reception end of things. Mm -hmm. And so I think that awards play a fairly significant role when it comes to teaching and when it comes to broader readership. And so I think that plays out in two ways. So in some of the research that I've done with Alexander Manchel and J.D. Porter, looking at the effects of literary prizes, we, we created a corpus of some 400 novels just to track what being nominated for an award does in terms of your eventual reception, since this is obviously a hotly debated topic. And we compared data of award nominees, just purely the act of being nominated on Open Syllabus Project. So we wanted to see how frequently are books that receive awards being taught? Is there a direct line between the stage at the National Book Award to the classroom? Yeah. And we found that a nomination alone was pretty significant in terms of increasing a book's likelihood of being taught. So if you think, maybe let's say the field of reception looks like a funnel, right? And you've got awards sitting at the narrowest opening of that funnel. It becomes a way in which awards perform a sort of winnowing function, both for teachers, but also for readers more broadly. There are tens of thousands of novels produced every single year. And just the nomination alone is a way of saying, okay, these 10, these 12, I don't know how many tend to be long listed. These are worth your time. These are worth reading. They have been pre-screened for you. It's almost some form of peer review. The experts say this is worth your time. So in the bigger attention economy, awards 
perform that function for us in ways that are extraordinarily useful. But I think for readers more broadly beyond the classroom, awards function not terribly differently from what Laura Miller has said about the bestseller list in that they're an advertising tool and a historical fiction. And awards end up signaling a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. This book is good because it has been nominated for an award and therefore it will continue to be thought of as good in the same way that being put on the bestseller list continues to produce a bestseller. It's yeah. put on the list, so it's going to continue to sell because the bestseller list yeah. is also performing yeah. that much. And then you put the sticker on it. And yeah, yeah. And so I think that is uh, a really important function that awards continue to play, is helping readers and teachers, those of us who teach contemporary literature, performing that sort of kind of winnowing function and directing attention in some important ways. But of course, and I think this is also really meaningful and why we can't think about reception as in any way distinct from creation and production, it's important to look at the, the back end of things, which is to say, there's many things that impact whether or not you win an award. So Juliana Spar and Claire Grossman and Stephanie Young have looked at MFA programs, looked at the degrees that writers who have won awards have. And it's not just an MFA from Iowa, it's also going to Harvard that have these sorts of impacts on the degrees that you get. But I think all of this kind of plays out consistently. It also has to do with where you're published, which publishing house has published you and who else they have published in the past. And that has to do with where your agent has pitched you, like to which editors your agent has pitched you, which has a lot to do, whether or not that agent has been taken seriously, has a lot to do with who else that agent has on their list, who else that agent represents, what agency they work at. And that also has very likely a lot to do with where they went to school and who they happen to know, how they managed to get that job which has a whole lot to do with where they grew up, with the sort of income that they have, that they've been able to inherit from their family or not. These are all knock-on effects that contribute to whether or not someone is even in the running to possibly be considered for an award that has little to do with the quality of the work itself. Right. And so Richard So talks about cultural redlining, looking at the impact of awards. And I think that's really good and useful. But I don't think that the metaphor of cultural redlining, I think what we're actually talking about is just redlining. <laughs> like it has so much to do with what neighborhood you've grown up in and where you've gone to high school and where you've gone to college. That is the work of redlining. And so it has cultural impacts, but this is not something that is unrelated to actual economic redlining, actual geographic and economic redlining. Awards are doing really useful work in terms of elevating certain writers, bringing them to attention of scholars, of critics, of readers. But what I love about Grossman and Spar and Young's work is the way that it's directing our attention to at least one of the other nodes in that process. And my work is trying to direct our attention to another node in that process. But thinking through the sort of economic political realities that every single person who's involved in this kind of great chain of enthusiasm that is publishing, that has led to that person's role as a decision maker is really important to think about the kind of ultimate material situation of the book that you eventually hold in your hands that wins the National Book Award or the Pulitzer or that finds its way onto your syllabus. One of the things I noticed when I was researching Brittle Paper, the digital hub for African literature, which we featured a couple episodes back, was that they recently rolled out their own slate of awards. Brittle Paper has been naming an African literary person each year since 2015, but this year they expanded the slate to include awards for publishers, academics, activists, and social media influencers. 
This is on top of the coverage of the major international prizes, which is central to their news vertical. I asked Brittle Paper's editor, Inahi Adoro, how she felt awards served Brittle Paper's readers and the stable of emerging authors who they publish. You're bringing up a very, very touchy subject in the literary world, awards. That's very strange thing that both inspires people and irritates people. On a kind of broader context, I like awards. I think that they are great. I like them for the way that they make the culture make sense and make the culture visible. Awards to me are not necessarily meant to be the shining bastion of fairness or even merit. I have been on quite a few high profile judging panels and trust me, there is nothing objective about it. It's a bunch of human beings sitting at the table with their interests, their prejudices and their expertise and also their blind spots. So all of that come into how you decide who wins an award. So people who get frustrated that awards, you know, are this way or that way, I think they're maybe not getting the point of what an award is. Ultimately, it's a space to gather, to get the community together and to reaffirm what the community is. Awards that celebrate literature on whatever scale, I love it. At Brittle Paper, we look forward to award seasons. The Booker Prize is a religion for us. We wait the night before, hoping that there's an African writer in there. Mm-hmm. If there's an African writer. It's just weeks and weeks of us celebrating and creating all kinds of content around mm-hmm. them. We think it's great. Yeah. African literature in itself needs more high profile awards. That's something that we are missing. I think that we could do with a version of the Booker Prize dedicated to African literature, but that's composition for another day. At Brittle Paper, the reason why. We wanted to start our own award, which of course is not funded, is not about the money. It's just us naming a few people and saying thank you all through the year for what you've done in your specific field. And we also try to honor people who, because of the way the literary industry is built, will probably not be honored. The literary industry and awards tend to be focused on writers. But they are, as you're doing in this platform, you are part of a massive world of people behind the scenes who provide visibility for authors, who make authors possible and their work. Our job and our objective is to see how every year we can spotlight people who do that type of work. And so a literary person of the year is usually geared towards someone who is providing infrastructural support, behind the scenes support for the culture. And we think that's just important to celebrate these guys who they make space, but people would probably never hear about the things that they do. But yeah, I think that awards are great. The more, the merrier. Yeah, I love recognizing the role that awards can play in shaping a a community's acknowledgement of itself, right? Like, I think that's something that... Absolutely. In fact, let me add a little bit to that idea of identity, right? Mm -hmm. And you're certainly right that identity is something that you have to invent. Mm -hmm. And even the idea of an African literary community 
to be honest, is a pretty recent mm -hmm. invention. It's not as if African writers have never felt connected. Are you kidding me? The entire 20th century is built on just amazing Pan-African relationships and connections among writers all over the world. But digital culture has allowed us to be able to take that connection and perform it in a way that it hasn't been possible to perform. Yeah. And part of that is naming this thing called African literary community, that it exists. And part of how you go through that ritual of naming and affirmation is through awards, actually. For example, there's this genre called African futurism, right? Mm -hmm founded by Nnedi Okorafor. It's a name that she coined and that she has advocated for many years. African writers are just now beginning to say, hmm, you know what, let's adopt that name. So imagine you have a big African Futurism Award. That would be a very powerful way to actually bring this idea that seems to be emergent right now into being in a very powerful way. So yeah, I think awards are great for identity production as well. Throughout Criticism Limited, we've been profiling para-academic publishers like Brittle Paper, who are platforming criticism outside the corporate structures of both media conglomerates and universities. When I spoke with John Hay a few episodes ago, he mentioned being inspired to launch Las Vegas Review of Books by another para-academic publication, Public Books, founded by Sharon Marcus and Caitlin Zaloom in 2012. Last fall, Laura and Dan collaborated with Public Books to publish a series, Hacking the Culture Industries, through which digital humanities scholars performed data-driven interrogations of bestseller lists, streaming algorithms, queer representations in video games, and diversity narratives in legacy media. It's an eye-opening series, which has since launched a full-fledged culture industry section at Public Books. Like many of the venues we've profiled, the culture industry section is producing provocative, public-facing, para-academic criticism, which appeals to those consumers whose insatiable appetite we've documented throughout this series. But it's also addressing the conglomerates themselves, recognizing that they are assemblages of workers who read, who think critically, and who in many cases care about literature. I asked Laura about this mission. The very earliest public writing that I did, which was a piece I published in the Los Angeles Review of Books about comp titles, which was looking at the data around the most frequently selected comp titles and considering the larger process about how those frequently selected comps lead to kind of the production of very similar literature and are exclusionary. And, you know, in publishing Twitter and many of the sorts of opinion pieces that get published about the contemporary publishing industry, a lot of what we read is a whole lot of vibes. And I wouldn't necessarily say that this work is wrong, like that those vibes are off, but it certainly doesn't come with large scale data and not necessarily coming with a whole lot of research. And so it's hard for me to imagine a lot of that research being especially actionable for someone who might be newly coming up in the industry and trying to change things. And so one of the things we thought really hard about with the Hacking the Culture Industries series, and that I still think about now at the section, is how we can 
bridge scholarship and industry. And in particular, how the one can perhaps incite some sort of change or enable some sort of change in the other. So I thought about this a lot when it came to a piece that Kenton Ramsey and Howard Ramsey III wrote about the one Black writer at a time phenomenon in the New York Times. Howard Howard was actually, is actually on the series as well. Oh, great. But one of the things we talked a lot about was there's been, especially in the last two years, so much conversation around inclusion and equity in publishing, particularly around racial diversity in publishing. And again, there's a whole lot of vibes, right? On the one hand, this feeling like, oh, editors only want to acquire books by people of color, or it is impossible for a white man to get published anymore. And perhaps one of those things is true that editors do want to acquire more books by and about people of color, but the Second, (laughs) that it's impossible for a white guy to get published is just categorically wrong, like in every way. But we were trying to imagine what someone who is like a part of the book section of the New York Times might feel as they were reading this piece. If someone felt inspired and said, okay, I really want to change things, certainly this piece would not have been the first time that someone had that thought. And yet there hasn't been significant change as Kenton and Howard showed. So what could be the thing that makes the difference? And so we really tried to think about the sort of data that could be useful for someone who might say, no, we need to really change the way that our coverage works. The sorts of choices that we're making about who to cover and how often are deeply biased or deeply racist, and we need to change that. It seemed like the more that we could provide data that person could use in the newsroom, whoever that hypothetical person might be, that might help them be persuasive to whoever their hypothetical editors might be, that was what we saw as the audience for the piece and the sort of niche that we were hoping to fill. How can scholarship be particularly useful for the people who I think would like to be and very often are our allies? How can we make this useful for them? I got a lot of questions after my comps piece got published in 2019, people saying, okay, so can you tell me what comps I should list in order for my book to get published? Which A of all, that's not how that works. I'm sorry. But B, no, I'm not going to tell you how to do this. I'm not a consultant for one, but I would much prefer to challenge the very system of things right. in which this thing exists rather than- not teach people how to game it better. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. What I was hoping we could do with Ken and Howard's piece, the way that we thought about lots of the pieces in that series was how can we use research and scholarship to help the people who are doing this work do it better? And and help them to challenge a system that we are all in agreement is very unfair and has been very unfair for a very long time and also has not changed. What could we possibly do? What could we provide? What sort of scholarship and research could help create that sort of change? So I have a piece that's coming out soon in NLH that's looking at book deal announcements and interrogating some of these assumptions. One, that there's been this quote unquote push is is what the New York Times has called it, this push to diversify the publishing industry, that more books by and about people of color are being acquired. And while there has been a slight increase, the data shows that increase doesn't feel particularly significant when you consider that most of these books are what Colson Whitehead has satirized as the Southern novel of black misery. These are books that are appealing to a white liberal audience and their idea of what Black experience should be or their idea of what Asian American experience should be. Means of rejection. Exactly, exactly. I think that thinking about how we can look at data in some ways that can be meaningful, useful to people who I think genuinely do, like that's been really important 
for me about studying the publishing industry and talking to people in particular. I've, I've joked and, and called like editors and agents fellow travelers at times because we share so many commitments. And I think that really is true in a lot of ways. There are many commitments we do not share. <laughs> there are some very major differences, but trying to think about how the work that we do in hacking the culture industries or the culture industry section at Public Books might be in better communication. So one of the things I would love, you asked what I'm looking for, I would love people who are not scholars, who are not academics within higher education to write for us. I would love a well-researched, data-driven piece from an agent, from an editor, from someone who works at BookScan. People who are doing this sort of work together would be really exciting for me too. It cuts two ways because on the one hand, clearly one of the, the things you're looking for is arguments based upon publishing data, upon circulation statistics. On the other hand, the audience that you are targeting is a very specialized one. And I think this is something that our sort of data-driven culture has maybe deluded us to is that particularly with digital publishing, whether that's text or audio or video, is so much of it is now judged by and rationalized by metrics, right? Mm -hmm. Like how do you reach your largest potential audience? And what can you do by analyzing the metrics that you get back from whatever you're producing in order to maximize that audience? And having that data can be very valuable and can certainly be great for making arguments for grants or for funding and budgeting. But what it misses, and I think is something that is getting lost, is that we are also entering a sort of nichification of culture media. And I personally am very fond of writing that is thinking about how to persuade one particular audience who may have some sort of power. Right? I recently published a, a piece at LA Review of Books that was pretty much targeted at the Temple faculty, right? Or who I was speaking to. And we heard you. And I'm like, yeah. the number of group chats that I was on that was like, have you seen this? Do you know? Did you read what this is? It's amazing. Thank you. Well, I think it just Service was to... very much appreciated. Uh, it was more just to say, I like the idea that this section is thinking about a particular audience. Obviously, it appeals to other audiences as well. And I have enjoyed reading a lot of the pieces in it. But the idea that one way to, to actually increase its appeal is to have that very specific audience in mind. Instead of thinking, right, how do we make this accessible to everybody? Think about the people who might care most about it and who might be able to affect change with that knowledge. Mm -hmm. right? That's an incredibly powerful way to think about what criticism can do. If there is something that is good about critical work, if there is something that is good about cultural scholarship, right? Like being able to direct it towards a set of workers, laborers, and even tastemakers who actually have that potential to affect change. Mm -hmm. I think that's an extraordinarily good way to be thinking about how to structure what we do. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing I am proudest of most in the world, I think, to date, other than like my kid of work, yeah. <laughs> is I was told by an editor 
and a VP at one of the big five publishing houses, that she shared my article about comps with the CEO of their conglomerate. And that as a result, they've changed the way that they think about comps and acquisition in their house. And that's huge. Like that to me, I said, could you please write that and certify that in a letter so I can put it in right. a tenure file, please? I know it doesn't count, at least in the way that we in academia think about the sort of impact that criticism can have. Yeah, There's but no it should. Factor it on should. <laughs> yeah. And that's exactly what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Like it should matter more than a metric, right? That a, that a decision at a publishing house was made because of an argument that you published. Like that should matter a lot more than what Google ranking the journal had. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Yeah, that feels like the flip side to me, not like the way that a provost might talk about public scholarship and the way that we might think about public intellectual life, but ways in which we can think about how our work could matter to culture industries. We could be in conversation with people who also care a whole lot about books. Seems like a a different way of thinking about public criticism or a different way of thinking about the work of a public intellectual, not in the Adam Grant or Emily Oster kind of space, but as a way of thinking about how our research subjects might care a whole lot about what we have to say about them (laughs) and how we can work together is, I think, really meaningful. Yeah. And that's a very good point to make about public scholarship is that it too often gets fused with this aura of the public intellectual, right? That it's about going on talk shows and, you know, getting trade book contracts and maximizing your Twitter followers or whatever. Mm -hmm. Anytime that you are actually engaging a community outside the academy, no matter how small or how nichified, right? Anytime you are making your research more accessible to more people Mm -hmm. and people who can actually benefit from from it and use it in various ways. Like that's public scholarship, Don't not popular. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. true. I will happily take the trade book contract and the TED talk. Right. <laughs> of course. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm not saying we need to have fewer academics in those spaces as well, I, I, but I think public scholarship gets ridiculed because it is associated with this kind of aspiration to celebrity status that I think many academics now see as delusional, and and I think rightly so. But we have to remind people over and over again that public scholarship is going to your local bookstore or your local library and giving a talk geared towards the people who are actually going to be there or helping the local historical society to organize their archives so that they can find stuff that will be beneficial to the community. Those things, I think, get ignored when we talk about public scholarship. And I do think another form of public scholarship is saying, I have done research, I have done work that is valuable to and might feed upon the anxieties of a particular sector. Mm -hmm. How do I reach them? (laughs) Is it actually consulting with and having sort of private arrangements where you can try to persuade people within? Or is it publishing something that you know will reach that audience, even if it doesn't reach any other audience? Mm -hmm. I think that's really important. Yeah, even if I get zero credit for it. (laughs) when I go for tenure. In the same way that literary criticism is not just what's happening in the Harvard English department, public scholarship is not just what's happening in the page of New Yorker, right? There's lots of ways and spaces in which this is happening and happening in really productive, healthy, generative ways. As Laura notes, Howard Ramsey was one of the contributors to the Hacking the Culture Industries series. He and I spoke briefly about that research, and I'm going to close this episode with our conversation. 
Howard will be back next week to talk about podcasting criticism. For more about this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash conglomerate or subscribe to my Substack newsletter. I'm Matt Siebold. Thanks for listening to Criticism Limited, the eighth season of the American Vandal podcast from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. The digital humanities work you've been doing with Kenton Ramsey, is that, is that your yeah, brother? Yeah, that's my brother. Yeah, my younger okay. brother. <laughs> Who's a professor at, at University of Texas, Arlington. Mm-hmm. And last year, you co-authored a piece for Public Books oh, yeah. in the Culture Industry series on the treatment of Black authors by the New York Times in which you argue with considerable data that basically the Times will only promote one or maybe two black writers at a time. Mm-hmm. And even then doesn't promote them in the way they will an Updike or a Roth or a Mayer, yeah. right? And since then, I know others have confirmed that the Times is not alone. I'm, I'm thinking, for instance, of Nora Shallon's work on The New Yorker. And each of these legacy publications chooses one author of color for each generation. And so one of the things I want to ask you is how can new media projects work to counter that kind of entrenched racial tokenism and allow us to not just expand the canon, but think about the ways in which particular corporate ties media form mm-hmm. how you think about what culture is. Yeah, this is where I think as academics, I feel like something we do almost to a fault. We'll go out of our way to look for that writer nobody's talking about and like pride ourselves on it. And you will hear grad students saying it all the time. I want to write on something that nobody's written on, <laughs> you know, whereas the Times and popular press are doing just the opposite. They're like, hey, what is everybody talking about? Let's make sure we're covering this. So I think what role we could do is try to stand somewhere in the middle and just look at what we're doing and actually try to fill in spaces. I keep saying fill in spaces, but I think that's part of the work we could do. And it, and it means looking back at what have I covered and what hasn't been covered. That's one. But then as an editor, I think I can just do more to just encourage writers. Hey, let's make sure we mention a few more writers in here just to fill out this space. And I don't think that's always done in some of the popular pieces. Now, I say all of that, but then I, I can't like I, Morrison and Toni Morrison is like the novelist. That, and I don't think people realize the degree to which she's different. Her coverage between actually from the 90s up to today, she just covered far more than others. But I can see it on my blog and on the podcast, too, like she draws far more attention than any of the other writers. So I, like, it's weird how, like, <laughs> in the role I'm in, I got to pay attention to it at the same time. Like, if I do a whole group of things on novels and I don't cover her, you know, I'm going to get some emails and people say, hey, you didn't cover Morrison? Or students, when they're at their schools and their teachers, they go find something out on the net, they'll stumble on us. So anyway, it's very seductive. Mm-hmm to cover figures that, you know, hey, I'm talking to someone who covered Twain, so I don't got to tell you I'm preaching to the choir. But yeah, it's a trip that you have to think about all of these kinds of factors.